struck by that line in that song that describes, it's a, it's a form of an apologetic, I guess. An apologetic would be us defending our faith and what statements, what truths would we know to be able to defend the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is who he claims to be. And so um, that, that one line in the song, it says, he rose and conquered the grave. It's like, if you can prove that, <laughs> case dismissed. Any other gods in the room have beaten death? Anybody? Anybody? And there won't be a hand going in the air, will there? You see, that is the demonstration of God's power. Uh, he's done so many things. But the demonstration of his power was hinged on Jesus' statement, you destroy this temple, this body, and in three days I'll raise it up again. So God concentrated his power in that moment to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the revealed demonstration of his power. And every generation has to wrestle with what are we looking for when it comes to a demonstration of power? What are the things that we value? So if somebody possesses it, those are the powerful people in our society. And there's no denying that right now we're technologically driven. So the person that comes out with the best device or the coolest app or something that really makes uh, life a lot easier or something, they become powerful people. They make lots of money. They ascend to what our society would describe to them as power. Fortunately for us, the definition of power, as we just sang about, has not changed at all. So that God has been power, has demonstrated that power, and has revealed that power to us. And so it's that that I hope to uh, be able to dive right into this morning. I want to get right into our text because, quite frankly, it's been a few weeks since I've been able to speak about it. So I'm chomping at the bit. We've we've um, we've we've pacified a couple of decent fill-in speakers, I guess. You know, with Dr. Chris, he was amazing, was he not? Did I tell you about the accent? I mean, it makes everything cooler. He is a really brilliant guy and just really helpful to our ministry, and, and we're really excited to be supporting him. And then, of course, um, Pastor Sam, Sam Huggard, came and filled in for us last week, and we love having him around, and I just, I really just love him as a person. He's so humble and very helpful and stuff, and so I was excited for you that you got to hear him, but I ended up listening to him on Facebook as well. So um, if you have not tried watching the services on Facebook, uh, we're really excited to be able to be providing those. Um, our friend Fran Newt has come and dedicated his time and, and skills and everything to set us up almost overnight when we were saying goodbye to Pastor Bill for his retirement service. He came right in and made it all happen in that short a period of time. And then we said, you know, we actually would like to keep this going as a service to folks that can't make it. We have a lot of friends at Faith that just can't make it anymore for health reasons and things. And then we'd also pray that it would expand some of our outreach and our ministry to our area. And so he said, I can help make that happen. And so he's been very uh, helpful to us in that regard. So you know what? Let's give Fran a hand. All right. I just, I don't know if you caught that. I said it really subtly, but I said, let's give Fran a hand. I took the D off the wrong... I, it's going to be one of those messages. I just apologize ahead of time. So, so here we go. We're getting right into the text. Uh, Dr. Chris brought us all the way up to second Corinthians four, verse seven, where Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
So I believe our text this morning, launching from verse 7, is going to answer several questions that we need answered for us regarding power. And the first question it's going to answer for us is, what does real power look like? I think if you'll admit with me that our definition of what is powerful or, or what has sustaining power is all over the map, only to reveal itself down the road that it wasn't that powerful to begin with or that it was fleeting, it was powerful for the moment. What does it really look like? In order to understand verse 7 a little bit better, let's back up to verse 6, where also Dr. Chris brought us. And uh, Paul says in verse 6, for God who said... So if we're getting to the point of what does real power look like, we can almost stop right there for a second and pause. For God who said this next giant thing, understand, or I should say, underscore the word said. God didn't put into plan, all, uh, into motion all this great plan that he needed to plot and scheme. He said, angels, turn the lights on. It's dark up in this joint. I want to see some light. Boom. And it was done. That God who spoke something into existence. And I'm not sure if you've had my experience or not, but I've tried to do what all the gurus say. You speak the things into the existence of your life that you want to happen. Go away, 10 pounds. And it's like they got back, they, they returned to me even heavier. It, I, I'm trying to do that whole, you speak your things in, I'm not really trying, I'm being facetious, but you know, they tell us, you know, the things that you want to happen in your life, speak it into existence and it shall be. That the only person that's ever been able to do that is the Lord God Almighty. Let light shine out of darkness, verse six says. God just spoke it. The same one who said that and could make that happen has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in where? In the face of Jesus Christ. So the first question, if you're following along in your notes that we gave out with the bulletin this morning, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, mostly if you're a blank filler, then that will satisfy you and will keep you engaged this morning. But also because there's some follow-up too. What do you do with this message? Where does it take you throughout the week? And so I've given you some suggestions there. Some incredible short videos on Right Now Media that I was able to watch this week that were pretty mind-blowing. If you're a Beatles fan or like that whole thing about how, you know, music came to be or who discovered the biggest acts in the world and stuff, one of those videos is really going to... So there, there's the intriguing hook. You're, you're drawn in now, aren't you? So I would encourage you to do that. That's part of the follow-up. But if you're following along in your notes, the first question is, what does real power look like? Paul says that we have this treasure. The treasure is that we contain the power of the one who can speak things into existence. So maybe you caught that. And again, we heard about this a couple weeks ago, that we are comparatively, we are jars of clay. We are earthen vessels. And, and I was trying to get a handle on what this means because I've heard it taught so often. One of the things that I stumbled across was that in archaeology, when they're digging up these ancient sites and they're seeing history come alive, they said the thing that they're finding the most of are all these throwaway jars. They're just common, ordinary, breakable containers and they're everywhere. It'd be the version of like if our, if our existence ended in the 1980s, what would they unearth from America in the 1980s? It'd be Tupperware and Tupperware would be everywhere. 
Did, how many of you sold Tupperware somewhere? Didn't they have to do that like a thing? Okay, Pat's proud back there. I did. So that would be a similar, except for the fact that Tupperware is kind of indestructible. We'd probably find it all intact, you know, two millennia later. So uh, the difference there is that what, what we're understanding is that the jars of clay that Paul is referring to are the most common household vessels. Not very artistic. They're not the vases that would be all painted and, and beautified and things. Instead, they're just functional, not extremely attractive, not really missed if they're discarded. Murray Harris in his commentary talks about this great paradox that's starting to reveal itself in Paul's teaching. He says, what we're looking at here is the indescribable value of the gospel treasure and the apparent worthlessness of the gospel's ministers. Mr. Harris is picking a fight with society when he says worthlessness. He did say apparent, but when he says worthless, it's one of the great debates of our time, isn't it? That we have such a poor self-image that we see very little or no worth in us at all. And what Harris is saying here is that Paul is elevating the indescribable value of the gospel treasure next to the apparent worthlessness of its container. Experts would say that climbing needs for therapy or medication or what's increasing in suicide rates are the result of feelings of worthlessness. And there is some truth to that. There is a lack of purpose in mankind today. The problem is, is where we look to bolster, what we look to strengthen, where we go to find the glue to put our pieces back in things is usually misguided, which continually leads us in a place of continual emptiness. It's almost like this vessel of ours that we keep trying to fill with everything has this hole in the bottom. It just keeps running out. I can't fill it up fast enough because it's just running out. Because I'm looking to me, I'm looking to the statements that, that people are telling me I need to make in the mirror. I'm looking to all those things to feel some worth and it's not filling up the container. But what Paul isn't saying here is that there's some, there's a zero worth to the container. He's not saying that since it doesn't matter, let's throw them all away anyway. Harris continues in his commentary. He says, what we're seeing here is the relative insignificance and unattractiveness of the bearers of the light with the inestimable worth and beauty of the light itself. It's just a comparison. We're offended by the comparison because it diminishes the one we're supposed to be looking out for the most, which is us. I say that tongue in cheek compared to, I mean, according to worldly philosophy, it's really all about how you and I see ourselves in the mirror. It's really all about how good we feel about us. That being that what rules the day and what Paul comes in and says, it's really eh, compared to what could you could be containing in the glory of God. It's really way out of balance. We had a great opportunity, uh, the men, when we went up to Jackman last week for the men's retreat. We were up at Moose River Outpost, and it was such an incredible time, and there's so many stories that are still pouring out of that time. Fifty-ish um, men, I think, went up there, and and uh, we are encouraged to get some one-on-one time with guys, hear their stories. Um, there's prayer that's happening for each other and stuff. It's really, it's a cool time. And then there's lots of blowing things up, which is always awesome too. So don't think it was like way too spiritual or anything. I mean, there's a lot of destruction and mayhem happening too. Um, uh, is, 
Yeah, he's here. Uh, if you ever want to ask Royce a great story, ask him about a bee's nest. <laughs> Nothing turns a dude into a five-year-old like a bee's nest and a rock in his hand. I'm just saying. Looked like Mike Tyson the rest of the weekend. We found uh, one of the great escapes that we had at night after the events were done and our, our time was all free and you could do whatever you want is several guys each night would just kind of walk down this trail away from the camp light and uh, there's a basketball court out there and you just kind of lay on the tar and just take in the Milky Way. Look at the stars and it's just, you're in Jackman, Maine, right? So the little bit of light that the camp had is now even, you know, a quarter mile away now you're out there and you're just soaking it all in and it reduces you. It shrinks you. That comparison, that inestimable worth of all that you see in the sky, and you're like, Meh, I'm so tiny, so puny. And guys started like waxing philosophical. You know, we're getting all this, like we're tripping out on this is so crazy, you know. And uh, and Jeff's over there pointing out constellations for us, and he's sounding like an expert. And other guys are like, well, I know about this. And and then Keith Shorey speaks up and talks about some light years away that this thing sounds like a genius. We're like, Keith, are you Googling over there? What's going on, you know? And then it hit me on the way home. He watches a lot of sci-fi. If you watch a lot of sci-fi, they put stuff on the bottom of the screen that says where the ship's traveling. That's all he, that's where he got it from. It's not that impressive. But it was really cool in the moment, you know, we're just, we're wigging out. We're going, this is amazing, you know, and it, you get into that environment. But not once did any of us guys bring up the name of anybody who made these discoveries. The person who figured out how to measure how far the moon is or the person that knows about Andromeda or all, any of those kinds. Like none of those things were ascribed to anybody else. All we were taking in was what was on display for us. The point being is this, is that if we are going to be countercultural in our society, we have to spend a lot less time worrying about the vessel and focusing more on what is contained inside the vessel. The, the astronomer, the person who's just carrying out the duty of pointing us to the glory of God isn't getting the credit, nor should he really, or she, I'm sorry, we're in 2019, they, people of astronomy or something, we spend far too much time giving attention to the vessel, trying to fix the vessel, trying to, to hide its flaws or trying to overpromote those flaws. I'm a broken person. Everyone pay attention to me. All kinds of that going on. Paul is saying, let's stop spending so much time freaking out about the vessel and thinking about the glory that is spilling out of it. Who is this power for would be the next question on our list. I love the phrase that here in the, in the English Standard Version. It says that this, uh, that, that the treasure that we have contained in jars of clay is to prove that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Some of your versions might say that this power is from God, which is still accurate. It's an accurate translation. But I had a tendency to see that all growing up and just in my study of the Bible as it being like a delivery, a supply from God. He has put a box on my doorstep and rang the doorbell and I opened it and I said, oh, who's this from? And it says from God. So I can take that power and I can assemble it any way I want. I can use it on my own devices. I can set it up in my house or my garage any way I want because he being a good giver dropped it off at my doorstep and walked away. 
I like the clarification that I get from this, uh, from this translation that says that this power, yes, it's from him, but it still belongs to him. He didn't turn it over and say, now go ahead and use it any way you want on whatever you want. That this pa- this power, the surpassing power would be evident to us that it be- still belongs to God. You see, there's an ownership beyond just the supply. So who is this power for? It's not for us. We are beneficiaries of it, but it's not for us. There's a formula that we have a tendency to work out in our lives that I think is pretty simple. It sounds like this. My weakness, which I can readily admit, I think we're getting more and more comfortable in society today of admitting what our weaknesses are. My weaknesses plus God's power equals... Now, I'm going to help you out with the answer to this. If you ever watched He-Man, Masters of the Universe, back in like, well, I was like in fourth or fifth grade, I don't know how old you would have been. He'd hold up the sword, the sky would kind of all light up, and a lightning would come down to his sword, and he'd yell out in a giant voice, I have the power! He-Man got whatever his power was for wherever, for his own purposes, and he said, I've got the power now, Right? So there's this he-man Christianity that's coming with, as God supplies his power, now it's mine. So the formula would be my, pow- my weakness plus God's power now magically transforms to being my power. I'm not sure that that's what the scriptures are teaching, though. I see this often when I'm watching some of these documentaries. I like some that come up every once in a while if they're well done. They'll follow athletes that are getting ready to be discovered or they're going to go number one in a draft or something like that. You get to see the behind the scenes of their life. You see them, uh, you know, working their guts out in order to make a certain thing. And they've banked all their hope and future. A lot of them are coming from places where there's no money, there's no anything. And so they're thinking, this is my ticket to take care of my family and to make something of myself. And it's amazing when you see that, that how many of them have an acknowledgement of God's power. Many of them will say out loud, they'll write verses on their cleats and everything about the, I know the plans that I have for you, you know, like he said to Joshua, or my, my grace is sufficient for all your needs, or all things work together for good to those who love God and all these things. And then these star athletes become in those moments, these amazing evangelists. They all believe it. They're banking on it. And then the moment something happens, a severe injury or uh, they get cut from the team or they get overlooked by the scouts or something, all of a sudden God's plan is down the, is down the tubes. Because, and I, I wondered that, I'm like, well, that, that's what we all go through. We get disappointment. We kind of go, oh man, God, what are you doing here? I don't understand it. The point is the reason why we keep running into that frustration is because we expected the equation to be, I said I'm weak. I know you're strong, so when you show up, you give me my dreams and my desires so that when you don't, now I think there's something wrong with your power because I was supposed to be using it for my needs, wishes, and wants, even the good ones. God might be saying something else. He might be saying, no, wait a second. I didn't just drop that off at your doorstep and leave. I I, I brought it to you. I delivered it to you, and I said, I'm going to bring it in your house and set it up for you because I know how it's best used. We've been talking about this, uh, I don't know if you've noticed in our sermon titles ever since we started in 2 Corinthians, I've seen this as a strange path to some destination. And the reason why this, the, words, the phrase strange path keep com- kept coming up to me 
is because I see Paul trying to work with a group of people that might have had the right expectations, but they were going about it in all the wrong ways. And I, and I thought that's a great explanation of who we are. It's not that the things that we want are always evil, wicked, or distorted. It's how we expect to get there and who's in charge, but who owns it, all that kind of stuff can get all out of whack. And so Paul is leading these believers down a strange path to all of these good destinations. And so this week we talked about, we're talking about the strange path to fulfillment. And I put together this little chart here that I'm going to walk us through each, each uh, step by step, but a really, you know, creative artistic design here. Um, if, if X marks the, the spot for fulfillment, then we have to know where the journey is beginning and then we're going to move through each stage of this journey. And so our first stop, if we're even going to start the journey appropriately, if we're going to arrive at fulfillment, we're going to start with emptiness. We're talking about being a vessel, a common, seemingly worthless vessel that has been built specifically to contain the power and the glory of God. If that is truly my calling, I need to learn how to get me out of it. If, if you had the promise for, if, if you were, uh, you know, had a vessel that was, you had a jar that was full of pennies and somebody said, I'll put as many quarters in that jar as it can contain. You wouldn't say, well, I'm going to leave those pennies in there because they mean something to me. So you might get five or six quarters in the top of that. You'd go, fill it up. It would be a smart investment, right? It's kind of like what Paul's getting at. He says, empty you out of your own container. Allow the Lord to fill that up. The power of God is not for our purposes. The next question, question number three, that verses 8 and 9 are going to help us answer is, where is this power seen? Verse 8 says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We're going to break each of these down, but I had this strange thought along the way this week. I was picturing... Uh, some of you have mugs at your house that have cute phrases on them or sarcastic things or something. We all have those kind of mugs in our house. We have some in the staff kitchen. The one that I think we like the most right now is somebody gave it to Janet and it says, the goal of the day is to keep the tiny humans alive. You know, so mugs are for these little pithy and cute statements and all that stuff. And I'm like, how does Paul's instruction show up on mugs? And so I took a crack at it and I put some of these statements on some of these mugs so that we would think, okay, the next time I come down for my cup of coffee, I'm going to get a giant glass of affliction or persecution or perplexion or any of these dumb things. You know, it's like, how am I supposed to turn this into a positive? It's not the cute phrases that show up on a mug. These are things that are coming from Paul's experiences, primarily as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what he's been showing us because of his unique calling to be an apostle, you'll remember that he was a train wreck. I mean, he was, uh, well, more than that, he was a locomotive that was trying to destroy the church. Jesus saves him out of his mercy, and he saves him on the road to Damascus. And so then he says, I am calling you now to live a life of suffering and demonstration to the church of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I, I, captain, I'm all yours. Paul's mug, if you will, is like a five-gallon bucket of the coffee he needs to drink every morning of affliction and persecution and being struck down and all these things. We're, we're relatively speaking, because you and I are not apostles of Jesus Christ, we haven't been carry, uh, called to carry such a giant mug. 
But Paul says that he starts to uh, reveal this in, in ascending order. He says, we're afflicted, but not crushed. I remember the first time, this is the best way I could think about this. I remember the first time somebody put a blood pressure cuff on my puny little child arm. And I remember as they were, you know, had the stethoscope buried under there and they probably, cause this would have been back in the like late seventies or something. They're probably like, you know, doing that kind of thing. And then they're doing, they always look distracted. Like they're doing something else. Like, Oh, is there an ant on the ground and everything? And the whole time you're going, when does this end? I don't know if you know this, but this is about to crush my puny little bones. And then out of nowhere, after they, they count, all of a sudden you feel a and it's like the greatest feeling in the world. Tingling starts coming back to your arm. Your life is back in you again. You feel like, I'm going to make it. I wasn't sure for a second there. Paul is saying, we're afflicted. We're squeezed. We're pressed all around. And at the moment that we think it's going to crush the very life out of us, starts coming back. I feel life in me again. Tenney, when he was writing about this, says, it's like being squeezed, but not squashed. Paul continues, he says, we're perplexed, but we're not despaired. The Greek has a rhyming word play in this that really we get lost in the English of it. It would be like if we were to translate it in English and say, I'm at a loss, but not at a loss. It's like, oh, I need a little bit more information. What do you mean by that? It sounds like you said the same thing twice. So we might say it's, it's kind of like being confused, but not confounded. There's, there's a, a, an experience where we feel the weight of something or the pressure of something or we're in that environment, but it isn't so disoriented, isn't so um, hopeless that we're, that we're um, ended because of it. Tenney again puts his own phrase on. He says, it's like being bewildered but not befuddled. How many of you use the word befuddled in your everyday language? You shouldn't. It's, it's gone by the wayside. <laughs> But it's, it's, it gets us close to the understanding. I'm confused, but I'm not confounded. I am staggering. I am in some sort of bewilderment, but it hasn't totally knocked me off my feet. Paul cared about this instruction. He cared about it so much that he told his young apprentice, Timothy. He says, but you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. In other words, Timothy don't panic. Keep your wits about you. Use this thing in your skull. Keep your head in all situations. Paul says we are also, we're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. I picture those scary movies where someone's running through the woods and something or someone is after them and you never really see how close they are. You know, the camera keeps changing and the person's running away and you just think, man, how haven't they tripped yet? And you know, cut their head open or anything. And then the pursuer is coming down and chasing them down. And it always seems to end up in like this wooded, uh, this opening, like a glen or something in the middle of, and then they're looking around and they don't know where their enemy's coming. It would be like somebody just whispering, saying, safety's this way. Come on, safety's this way. Hurry. Right at the last second, you feel like you're about to get pounced on. And Paul is saying, we're persecuted. We're chased down. We're hunted down like prey but we're never abandoned. That voice, just when we start to uh, feel the sweat on us, as our hearts are racing, we feel, I'm a goner. That's when that little voice is this way. Come on, this way. The psalmist said in chapter 22, 
a same phrase that Jesus himself would repeat, and this would be an example of a prophetic psalm where he writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the psalmist continues in something that Jesus knew and believed. In verses 4 and 5, he says, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. Jesus, hanging on the cross for the first time in all of eternity, could feel the Father's distance as he had to turn away because Jesus himself bore all of our sin, the stuff you walked in with today, the stuff you're going to commit, the things that I'm going to do next week, all these things, Jesus carried it all in perfect fellowship and harmony with the Father. And all of a sudden, like this cold shadow landed on him because his dad had to turn away. I can't even look at you right now because of how sinful and ugly you are. And Jesus expressing this psalm speaks it out into the air. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But knowing that because God is faithful, he would not be forsaken to the grave. He knew that three days later he would conquer the grave as we sang about. Jesus knew that he would be persecuted, but not abandoned. Paul says he was struck down, which is literally like, getting whacked over the head, getting hit with an implement by actually getting beaten. He says, but not destroyed, never destroyed. My enemy had his foot on my throat and he was about ready to to deliver the final blow. And just at the nick of time, my savior comes in and knocks him off of me and I'm rescued. I have hope that there is life available, available to me again. We haven't talked a lot about some of the specifics of Paul's suffering, but Certainly one of the most prominent and probably the, one of the most brutal ones was something he experienced in Lystra where they, they would take stones. That's what they would refer to in the scriptures as, as a stoning, as a punishment. They would take big rocks and softball-sized things and they would pelt the guilty with it. Imagine how that felt. And so Paul is taking this beating. They drag him out of the city, figuring he's left for dead. And then life comes back in him again. He revives Shakes a few pebbles off, looks at other disciples that are following Christ and says, let's go back. Let's do it again. I think it's interesting that in the movies that we like, that there's always this component, it seems in the dramatic ones at least, where there's a hero who's been struck down, but destruction has not ultimately fallen on him. There's something that we, that we rally behind and we, we'd start, we'd charge back into Lystra with Paul. If we saw him get up, maybe we were afraid. Maybe we didn't want to get captured before, but now he's back. Oh man, there's no holding us back now. But the relatable part in this text of what Paul is saying is just like we do, Paul felt real distress. I, just for a second, I want to talk to some of you that I think are faithful that are that are really giving your lives to the Lord. Maybe there was a point where you said, God, I am all yours. I'm all in. You do through me what you will. And along the way, as he's been doing that, along the way, as you've been feeling the sting of that persecution, have you been feeling the difficulty, perhaps the bewilderment of being, feeling like you've been left alone in the middle of the, the woods in the night, that you would start to, as, as more of that's happening, you start to think, maybe I am doing something wrong. Maybe I'm experiencing all of this because of some of the sin that, that I've, I've committed. Or maybe it's something I did when I was 10 years old, even though I'm 40-something now. Or any of these kinds. Maybe, maybe I am being haunted by my past sins and mistakes. 
So here is Paul in the midst of his total abandonment of who he is so that he could be the servant of Jesus Christ, still experiencing this pain, still experiencing some of the confusion that comes, still experiencing the the sweats and the anxiety and all of those things because that's part of the experience because that's what comes with trouble. So often our friends, well-meaning as they are, they try to over-spiritualize these things. You wouldn't feel any of this if you were more spiritual. It's kind of like what Job's friends said to him. They were saying all these right things about God. They were talking about the majesty of God and he's not one to be trifled with. Some of Job's friends who were guilty before God of giving him bad advice, we could use in a lot of worship songs today. Some of the things these guys said were right about God, but they were wrong towards Job. Job wasn't going through this because he was sinning. He was going through this because the Lord allowed a test to fall on him and they were completely missing the mark. Eventually, like Job, you have to be suffering because you're screwing this up. God said, don't talk to my servant like that. He doesn't deserve any of that. Some of you are experiencing the pains of surrendering to God because that goes with the territory. It's important for us to take some inventory. It's important to ask the Lord, God, examine me, see if there's any sinful way in me. It's important to do that. But if you're not getting a clear yes or you're not having that shown out, maybe it's just the calling that he has on your life to continue to endure some of these things. Don't lose heart. Paul's body endured all these things as a roadmap to something better. And he points to that in verse 10 and 11. He says, I'm always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This isn't pointless. He strengthens it in verse 11 by repeating it. He says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So as we continue down this strange path and we've started on a path of emptying ourselves, Paul is saying the next stop in this path is a dying to ourselves. And Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. When Jesus confronts him on the Damascus road and says, Paul, you as Paul are done. Paul says, I know I have to be. That Paul laid there on the road and the new one got up and walked away. He said, I'm not being that guy anymore. I'm not the one that's, that's, that's going against the will of God ever again. You see, Paul had to die to his self, as we are called to do. The next question our text is answering for us is, what does this power produce? Paul would start off and say, well, it produces the process of death that I am dying continually. Paul says that my life would demonstrate the dying process that Jesus went through for me. Sounds like a pretty morbid and negative product of God's power. But if it is towards the true path of fulfillment, it must be there for a reason. You see, when Paul was confronted by Jesus, when he was blinded by the spoken power, there it is again, of Jesus. So he's literally blinded for three days because of Jesus' verbal power over Paul. Paul was ready to sign up. He was ready to enlist. And you and I, if we're going to experience a demonstration of his power beyond what the people are telling us on TV stations with the 1-800 numbers at the bottom and everything, if we are going to see the real demonstration of God's power in our life, you and I have to be willing, there's the key, to sign up for a few things. 
to sign up for the mindset that says, God, whatever this takes, whatever you're about to drag me through, whatever about to, you're about to use, those moments in the middle of the wilderness where I feel like there's nobody going to rescue me, all of the feelings of the, the pressure that's coming around me, I will wait till the very last moment until you go, and give me that release. I will stand it out. Why? Because I don't care about me in my vessel. I care about containing more and more of your glory. I emptied the jar of pennies so that I'd receive the jar of quarters instead. So the question might be, what's your first thought when the affliction starts? If you were asking me, I don't think I'd want to answer that question publicly. When things start going bad in my life, what's my immediate reaction? Well, Paul's was Jesus. Paul's was, must have been what my Savior went through. Paul's was even more personally. He must have thought, that's what I did to him. What I'm feeling right now, he had to go through because of people like me. Paul's very first thought when the affliction, that very first sip of that cup in the morning of that hot coffee of affliction, his first thought as his tongue was burned was, that belongs to Jesus. I said that I would, my goal in life, but my, my pleasure in life would be to know him and to have communion or fellowship with him in his sufferings. This is what Paul means when he says that I've been given over to death. It's the same language that Jesus was given over to the soldiers on the night that he was betrayed. But this wasn't meant to be the end. What else this power produces is life. And this is the life of Jesus. And this was going to be on display in Paul's life. It's going to be on display for most parts in, in our lives as well. In the immediate, the life of Jesus Christ is going to show up in so many tangible ways. For Paul, it was like that moment where he got up from the stoning in Lystra and walked back into the city. It's a pretty tangible expression of the resurrection life, wouldn't you think? But it doesn't always show up in such big things. You know, you and I are not always going to wow the crowd. Some of you may have been waiting for your moment for a long time. That may not be our calling. I know I've, had it, I, I've heard it a bunch. You probably have too. I've had a lot of people saying, if you give your life to Jesus, he's going to blow your friends away. He's going to blow your family away. You're going to be like this miraculous kind of thing. And sometimes it just looks like, you know what? I'm kind of getting kicked in the teeth a lot. I'm drinking that cup of affliction. I'm drinking that cup of persecution. My life is really perplexing to me. I'm always getting beaten down, but the, re the end result is never final. That somehow he gives me just that little bit of escape. Sometimes, somehow that, that, that blood pressure cuff just releases just when I think it's about to cr crush the bones. Maybe that's our only testimony on this earth. But ultimately, the life of Jesus Christ will be seen in us when he raises us from the dead to glory. That when, when all is, just like he had the power to conquer the grave, he's conquering the grave for you and for me. That if our lives were marked by nothing less than just getting kicked in the teeth, getting tripped over, messing our own selves up and everything, that when, it, when the end comes, he's got the power to save us, that we will be with him in glory, singing praises and, and giving him honor and praise to his name. That this would be the end result. The life of Jesus would be made manifest or made visible 
He wraps it up in verse 12 by saying, so death is at work in us, and the us that Paul keeps referring to is the apostles or those that are called to suffer greatly as an example. So death is working in me. He's saying it's it's showing up in my life. I'm in the process of going towards the the, the grave that, that Jesus was led to. I'm, I'm demonstrating his death in my body so that life would be in you. How embarrassing, how heart-wrenching must it have been for the Corinthian believers who had already started turning the corner. They already started repenting of the way that Paul was treated. But they had put such an emphasis on him. Paul, we wish you were cooler. We wish you were better. We wish you were all those things. And he gets back to them and essentially says this, I'm willing to keep dying so that you can find life. So don't worry about my fame, my notoriety and everything. You guys need life. I'm willing to die continually for you. So do you want that showy, braggadocious leader anymore? Or do you want that person who's going to live sacrificially? I think the Corinthians were thinking, I think I know what my choice is. This is producing life in you. So Paul is leading them down this strange path. He says it needs to start with emptying yourself and that you start to die to yourself so that you can then live for other people. And until you go through those first two steps, all of our living for other people is pretty much an acting job. There's a lot of us that are really giving, loving people, but we also really want a lot of attention for it. I want the acknowledgement. I want my kids to know how much I've sacrificed for them. Until we have emptied of ourselves and lived for the containment of God's glory, until we have died to ourselves, we cannot truly, and I mean truly, live for other people. And that is how we land on that X, that treasure of finding fulfillment in Jesus Christ and carrying his death, which leads to life. So to conclude all of this, we can sum it up quite simply. You and I need to acknowledge our own emptiness. We need to stop striving to overvalue ourselves, find all the secret uh, gimmicks and tricks that make us feel better about who we are and focus instead on the contained glory of God that he is willingly and graciously placed within us. How do we, how do we tip the scales in favor of God's glory and think less of ourselves? And that we also would relinquish outcomes predefined outcomes. I'm always telling the Lord how I think he should bless me. I'm always saying, now, Lord, you know, I want credit for praying. I know who I'm talking to at least. But even in my subtle kind of quiet prayers and everything, I'm like, so Lord, it would be really great if you did this. And I have this narrow-minded definition of a blessing that if he showed up, then I said, then if you do this, I'll know that you've arrived. I know that you've provided it. And God's saying, this glory that can speak all that you were freaked out about the other night laying under the stars, the same power that can do all that with one word, and you're going to say, I can only show up and do this here for you to think I'm real? Like I can reduce him to that amount? I need to relinquish predetermined outcomes. God, if, if none of that shows up, I don't want to ever doubt your power again either. So that I can lay my life down for others. I'm not going to strive to make my life about me, which will lead me down the strange path of finding true fulfillment. 
So that formula that we talked about, you know, my weakness plus God's power so often leads to me thinking it equals my power. We just change the equation. It should equal and it does equal God's power. We grow in weakness. We embrace power which leads us to more weakness. So there's your encouraging thought to the, for the day. Go off and be weaklings. But that's where it's at. This is the theme of the entire book. You're going to see this as I uh, put it in, in your notes this morning that uh, chapter 12, verse 9 is the quintessential theme, if you will, of this book, that my grace is made strong in your weakness, that his strength is seen in our weakness. That's what we're striving for. What a weird thing for us to be chasing down. What a strange path for someone to try that out in the workplace, try that out in the job site, try it out in the classroom, see how popular that is. I'm trying to be weaker. It's not going to fly, but yet it's the true path to fulfillment. Would you stand? Let's close our time in prayer this morning. Well, Lord, I just thank you, God, for helping us through your text. I pray, God, that um, some of the words that we shared really resonate in the way that the hearts of your people need to hear. I thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness. I thank you for their going against the grain to even sit under the teaching of your word. Lord, to wrestle with these truths, to think about their own hearts before you, to welcome more of you into their life and yield more of their their flesh over to you. Lord, I just thank you, God, that you're moving in your people here at Faith. We pray for an equal blessing, Lord, for the other churches in the area, those that are trying to wrestle with the scripture, trying to to chase down your will as well, Lord, that this community would be transformed because of your people shining a bright light, that your glory would spill out of us as broken vessels that would be so undeniable that many would be called to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you've given to us. Lord, we will strive to be even more thankful for them knowing, God, that uh, that you are the giver of good gifts. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.